Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. On December 7, 1941, 19-year-old college freshman John Luckadoo was chauffeuring around a group of local kids in a Buick he had borrowed from a neighbor in his hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. John was not able to use his father's car because his father didn't yet trust him behind the wheel. Suddenly, while listening to the car radio, a newsman interrupted the program to announce that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. John was well aware that a war had been raging in Europe for over two years. However, Even though he had never heard of Pearl Harbor, he knew that the United States was about to enter the war and his life was about to change significantly. Less than two years later, John would be piloting B-17 bombers over enemy-occupied Europe. Between June and October of 1943, John, who would earn the nickname Lucky, would fly 25 missions as part of the 8th Air Force's 100th Bomb Group known as the Bloody Hundredth, due to the heavy losses it sustained. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we will be speaking with 100-year-old John Lucky Luckadoo, along with award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author Kevin Maurer. Kevin's latest book, Damn Lucky, One Man's Courage During the Bloodiest Military Campaign in Aviation History, tells the story of John Luckadoo. Lucky will share his thoughts and experiences from his life and combat service. He and Kevin will also talk about the strong friendship they developed while Kevin researched and wrote the book, Damn Lucky. I'd now like to welcome John Lucky Luckadoo and Kevin Maurer to our show. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Terrific. I am going to start off by asking Kevin, how and why did you choose to write the story, Damn Lucky, One Man's Courage During the Bloodiest Military Campaign in Aviation History? I found the story in a Q&A on the Military Times. They interviewed Lucky about his experience, and I was sort of inspired and taken by the way that Lucky told his story. And so I called him, I tracked him down and called him in Dallas and asked him if I could read his book or what was the title of his book. And Lucky told me he didn't have a book. And so we, we set out at that point to kind of write that injustice. But I mean, what inspired me was I think Lucky himself and the way that he told the story. And I think the, the courage he took one to get through those missions, but also I think the courage he's exhibited since about talking about the impacts and talking about the war uh, in a way that I, I think was refreshing. And so I, I was sort of taken from the minute I read, read his words and heard him tell the story. Well, so the first time you actually spoke, was that on the telephone? It was, yeah. I called him, uh, cold called him uh, out of the blue. But the, my favorite part of that story is Lucky was skeptical and wanted to read some of my work to make sure that I was uh, up to the task, uh, which I think I passed, which is awesome. And, uh, and then from there, I think once we, once we agreed to do this, it was really fun because I think we saw the same story and we fell right in. Uh, and, and was able to work, very, I think, very well together. Well, you certainly did. Lucky, what was your initial reaction when you got that telephone call from Kevin? 
Well, I was a little taken back because uh, I was not often asked what the name of my book was, but for this stranger to call me and identify himself as a writer and saying that he had uh, read uh, my story and thought that uh, it certainly ought to be documented. I was a little bit skeptical. I wondered what his writing style was and also uh, something about his history of what he had previously written, which he was very open about and informed me that he had done 10 books. And I was impressed with that. Uh, and that they uh, that he had been embedded with the uh, Green Berets and with uh, ground troops in Afghanistan and uh, in other places and written about that. But I discovered, of course, that he had not previously been familiar with anything related to the air war or aviation. And that, um, of course, gave me a little pause, but he sent me uh, some of his works and I read it and evaluated his writing style and discovered that, that I thought it would be uh, certainly appropriate for telling my story the way I felt it should be told because I was not a writer and didn't profess to be. And uh, I certainly was more than happy to welcome the opportunity of collaborating with someone who was an established writer and knew how to handle the material in order for the reader to be engrossed and interested in what they were reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also had no experience whatsoever with publishing. So I recognized that that was a, an entirely different field and uh, felt uncomfortable in trying to deal with it. And with Kevin's experience, it certainly was uh, welcome from my standpoint. But one of the interesting things about our initial contact was the fact that Kevin proposed that he would come to Dallas and sit down with me and go over my story in detail and then go back and write a manuscript and submit it to me for approval. And um, we recognized quite suddenly that that wasn't possible, that the COVID pandemic had interfered with our proposed plans. And so Kevin said, well, I'll just interview you over the phone. And so we began doing that on nearly a daily basis for an hour or two. And Kevin, of course, was extremely adept at probing my motives or my feelings and, and trying to refresh my memory because we were dealing with uh, material that had uh, occurred uh, some 75 or 76 years previously. And in that process, I discovered that uh, it was uh, not a pleasant experience for me to have to go back and try to recall things that I had purposely and very decidedly attempted to put out of my memory and out of my mind and wanted to forget and not recall. I understand. I've heard of a lot of veterans who just don't really want to relive those moments during their war experiences. And I was going to ask you, when, when Kevin approached you, 
you certainly gave thought to his qualifications and his ability to tell your story, but what kind of reservations did you have internally as far as reliving those events of the war? Well, of course, uh, I, I had to recognize that for 50 years after the war, I did not refer to it to even my most intimate friends or family. And uh, that was a concerted effort on my part to forget it. And uh, so when you try to subordinate your fears, your, your feelings and your, your memories, and then go back and try to, <laughs> uh, to resurrect them, it's a uh, somewhat cathartic experience uh, because it also gave me the advantage of looking at it from a different perspective, a more mature perspective, now that I had gained some age and experience. So I, I was uh, more philosophical, I guess, about the approach to my going back and digging deeply into my soul and memory and trying to recall details of what the experience actually, uh, as it took place, did to me. Because there is no question that anyone going to war comes back a different person. Yes, I would definitely imagine that. Kevin, let me ask you, when you were going through this process, as Lucky said, it was COVID and you had to conduct interviews on the phone. I would imagine that's a challenge in and of itself because you, you, know, you, you don't have the advantage of seeing body language as you're interviewing somebody and uh, absorbing the information that way. What were the challenges of conducting those interviews via the phone? I think you're right. You don't get those social cues. Um, and, and honestly, Lucky and I didn't know each other. We didn't meet in person until after the book was done. So, you know, you're, you're trying to build rapport with one another. You're trying to build that trust level, but you don't know what each other look like. You're not really in the same room. Um, and then as Lucky talked about it, it previously, I mean, I'm not asking easy questions, right? I'm digging deep. I'm continually digging and, scr and scratching at it. And, and I think oftentimes we would go back over something over and over again. And I could tell, you know, you can tell Lucky's like, not sure why are we going back over this so many times? And then when you start to see the pages in the manuscript and you start to see where that level of detail comes in, it pays off, but we were still learning it together. And, and again, um, I, don't, I didn't know anything about the air war. I knew the Memphis Bell, right? I'd seen the movie. I had no idea what I was writing about at all. And so part of it was a discovery for my part. I mean, the early drafts of this book, I'm sure Lucky read the first couple of drafts and thought, Jesus, man, this guy can't even speak English. I mean, so, you know, building that rapport was tough, but I think it helped in some way to have COVID going on because and I'm not sure if this was the same for Lucky. I think it was in that it was, a, it was something to look forward to. It was something we could control it was some normalcy that we could build into a time when no, the normalcy was hard to find. And I think that helped a lot in, in accelerating that rapport building. Thank you. Lucky, did you want to comment on that as far as uh, what it was like doing this during COVID? Absolutely. I totally agree with Kevin that it was sort of a blessing in disguise because we were isolated. Uh, and separated, uh, both physically and, and uh, as far as our voices were concerned. 
So it gave us an opportunity to really focus very specifically on the job that we were attempting to accomplish uh, jointly. And, uh, and I think probably uh, Kevin will agree with me that it was sort of a blessing in disguise that uh, it happened. It's hard to put that connotation on COVID for any reason, but uh, I do think that, that it had the ancillary uh, effect of giving us the opportunity to perhaps focus on it uh, a bit more acutely than we would have if we had just been sitting down and, and attempting to uh, relate the story in, in the normal manner. Definitely, definitely. This was not a normal manner. <laughs> no, no, far from it, far from it. Kevin, you mentioned that you didn't know too much about the air war. How did you know what questions to ask Lucky? I had somewhat of a roadmap because of the Q&A. I built the outline and the, the proposal around that, that interview. Um, I found out later that the way that interview was constructed, it, it made it appear that the mission that we, we really center on in the book, the October 8th, 1943 mission to Bremen, was a much more harrowing. I think everything that's ever happened to you, Lucky, in your career was in that, according to that Q&A, looked like it was packed into one mission. But I used that to lay it out. And then I, I did a little research, but I really wanted to be empty, like an empty vessel, and let him tell me the details. And really, because I think what works in the, lucky, in the, in the book and what is lucky. And, and we talked about this very early on in that, you know, the reader needs to bond with, with you and experience it with you. And so I tried to tried not to do too much homework because I didn't want to come up with a lot of preconceived notions. And I really wanted Lucky's story to, to, to color in the, you know, the picture for me. That's a great strategy. It worked in the book. I'll tell you, <laughs> it really, it really worked. We can talk more about the, the, some of the details in the book in a second. Lucky, when you first met Kevin in person, what was that like for you? Well, it was really uh, quite a revelation because of the difference in our ages, number one. Uh, and, and number two, uh, how affable he was, of course, um, having spoken with him so frequently and, and many times in the course of uh, relating my story to him, I think I got to know him pretty well and his personality. And so uh, I, was, I was extremely pleased to find that he was so easy to, um, to speak with and to talk with. And uh, I think his talent in being able to describe uh, and relate narratively the verbal stories that, that I gave him uh, is, is really exceptional. And I, I do believe that uh, I was darn lucky in uh, having him cross my path for that reason alone. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Kevin, same question to you. I mean, meeting Lucky, it, it, was, it was like seeing an old friend. I think we knew each other really well. Um, I think we fell right into the same conversations we'd had. What was exciting is, is we really met and we really talked around, we were at the Frontiers of Flight Museum and we really got to have a, a good chat there uh, around a model of the B-17. But it's sort of like that every time with Lucky. At that, at that point, I, I feel like uh, it, it was odd. It was an odd feeling, but it was also very, very familiar, right? Um, and so I, I think at the end of the day, uh, I think he's right. Um, we'd built such a shorthand 
uh, and we had shared this story in a way. And, and, and so it was really comfortable and fun and, and fun to talk to him. It's, it's funny though. I, I think story is kind of the most precious resource we have. And I, t- and I think about, you know, lucky story and for him to trust me with a story like this, you know, you, it's, it's serious business. And so um, it was sort of fun to, to make a friend out of it too. But, you know, I, I, you go into it very quick, very much, very seriously in that, you know, this is, you know, a commodity that you can't replicate. And so I wanted to make sure I did a good job with it. Um, so a little stress when you're working on it, but I think, it, you know, in the end, I think we ended up fun. And, and in that trip, I remember that trip, you know, quite a bit. I mean, we, we, he drove me around Dallas. Like you don't often jump in the, in the car with a 99 year old. He pilots you around Dallas um and we just had a good time so i mean i i've uh, i don't think i've ever i'll just be be very upfront um i'm a washington football fan and so going to dallas to me is not fun Ooh, and not one of my favorite cities so only reason why i like dallas now is because of lucky <laughs> hey i'm a new york giant fan so i, I even uh, have trouble going to dallas you know <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh yeah i'm so the book was already finished when the two of you met mm-hmm. okay so let's let's start talking about the book a bit here. Lucky, in the book, you mentioned early in the book that you and your friend who you called Sully wanted to become fighter pilots and fight for the Canadian Air Force prior. This is prior to Pearl Harbor being bombed. So the U.S. wasn't in the war yet. Can you tell us a little bit about that and who your friend Sully was? Sully was my best friend in high school. We went to high school together and were in the uh, uh, ROTC. Sully was uh, the most popular boy in school, president of his class. He was the commandant, the cadet commandant of our regiment. And we had two battalions and I happened to be uh, appointed as one of the commanders, uh, commander of one of the battalions. And so we, we did a great deal, a great many things together uh, in school and outside as well, uh, socially. And as we put our heads together as kids of 18 or 19 years of age are prone to do and looked at the bigger picture, the world situation, we, we became uh, convinced that it was just a matter of time before America became involved in the war that was then raging in Europe. Right. And of course, we were totally aware that the, of, of two things. Number one, that Britain was doing everything they could to involve us. But President Roosevelt knew that he did not have the support of the public uh, in going to war. And so he was having to resist that. And the second was that once we became involved, we knew that we were prime targets and candidates to serve. Absolutely. We were going to be called upon. And so as a result of that, we said, well, hey, we both want to fly. And Canada doesn't have the, uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force does not have the requirements that our Air Corps does as far as training. They didn't require two years of college. They didn't require that you be of age, which we were not. Uh, and so we said, let's see if they would accept us to, uh, to go up there and learn to fly, get our commissions, get our, our flight training, 
and then be a step ahead of everybody else by the time we did get involved and then transfer to uh, our own U.S. Air Corps. And so uh, we thought that was pretty cool. We thought it was pretty smart and uh, applied and they readily accepted that we wanted to come and join them and encouraged it. But they said, you will have to get parental consent. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. And <laughs> so that um, was, was a bit of a barrier. We didn't think it was too much of a barrier, actually. But come to find out, uh, Sully was an only child of a World War I veteran who had been mustard gassed and died a horrible death. And Sully never knew his father. So when we approached his mother about our idea of going to Canada to learn to fly, it would not have been surprising if she had just said, you know, this, this is my only offspring and, and uh, I don't agree with it. She listened to us very patiently and said, well, Sully, if you really feel that this is something that you must do, then I'll give you my blessing. And I thought naturally that, uh, you know, getting that kind of reaction from an adult parent, her only child, that my family, and I was one of three brothers and a sister, three siblings, uh, that um, I would expect uh, much the same type of reaction. And so when I approached my parents and explain the situation and what we intended to do and wanted to do. My mother, recognizing the great sacrifice that Mrs. Sullivan agreed to, said, well, if you both really feel like this is what you must do, I hate to see you do it, but if you feel like you, you need to, why I would not object, but you have to get your father's consent. Well, when my father came home and he heard what we were proposing, He went through the roof and he said, you blithering idiots don't have any idea what the world you're getting into or it's none of your business. Mm. It's not our business. And you get back in school. I wouldn't give you my consent over, over my dead body. And so Sully consequently did go to the RCAF and get trained. And meanwhile, over a year later, Pearl Harbor occurred, and then there wasn't any question. I didn't have to have parental consent to uh, join the Air Force as an aviation cadet and get my own training. And um, ironically, our paths crossed again in England later, as uh, as you know from reading the book and uh, what the consequences of that were. But it was it was something that we thought we were um, sort of meant to do, that it was the best thing that we could do for our own selves as well as our country. But I later understood that our parents' reluctance to agree was probably based on the fact that we would be representing another country and not America in that type of service. And so their objections were legitimate, but uh, by the same token, they were <laughs> uh, unhandy to unhandy, say the least. Yeah. They were, it was frustrating to you as a as a young kid who wanted to get going and you wanted to get into the action and all that, right? Absolutely. 
Uh, Lucky, just a quick question. Where were you or what were you doing when you found out that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor? That Sunday afternoon, I was in the process of driving a bunch of kids in my neighborhood around, joyriding. I had been accepted by several of our neighbors to be responsible enough to um, loan me one of their cars. Most of them had two automobiles. And my father wouldn't let me drive the family car, but uh, I had three neighbors who each said, well, you can take the kids out anytime you want and, and here are the keys. And we were doing that on that Sunday afternoon when the radio blared that uh, Pearl Harbor had been attacked. And none of us knew where Pearl Harbor was or what the real final implications of that news were. But um, it did strike me right between the eyes that, well, boy, we're in it up to our necks now. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be at the head of the line. Reserve. Yes. So that helps me segue to the next uh, question. So after the U.S. entered the war, you enlisted in the Army Air Corps, and you eventually became part of the 100th Bomb Group in the 8th Air Force. How did that happen? Very, very peculiarly. Normally, when you graduate from flying school, you're sent to a, um, an operational outfit, such as the 100th Bomb Group, and given some transitional training into the type of aircraft that you'd be assigned to. Because when you come out of flying school, you've only flown twin engine aircraft at the most, training aircraft. To suddenly take 40 members of my graduating uh, class and directly inject them into this group to replace all of their co-pilots, which never happened in any other group in the 8th Air Force. And nobody has ever explained why this experiment, I guess it was, took place. But they took 40 of us, including me, and just suddenly removed all of the co-pilots and put us in the right seat, never having been in a B-17. Now the bomb group at that point had been all through the preparatory training to combat. We had not. Oh boy. They sent us subsequently, um, very shortly thereafter, directly to the combat zone. So we were learning to fly the airplane and to get along with a 10-man crew on the job. You know, it's interesting, just like a year before, your father didn't trust you to drive the family car. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're piloting a, a bomber plane. So you make it pretty clear uh, in the book that you were not too well received in the, that new uh, crew that you were put in uh, as co-pilot. Can you just say a couple things about that, Lucky? Well, of course, the entire group was traumatized that their second in command of each crew would suddenly be replaced just as they were about to go overseas. And so there was naturally realizing that we were totally unfamiliar with the airplane and with the job that we've been assigned, that we were 
just novices that um, we were the weakest link in the chain. And if the pilot is incapacitated for any reason, then the co-pilot becomes the commander of the crew. So it's a heavy responsibility to suddenly be confronted with. And um, we didn't have any inkling of how we should, would, should cope with it. It was an individual thing, of course. And it was an individual thing with each crew. Some of the crews accepted the inevitable and said, well, we'll just have to go ahead and make the, make the most of this and, and uh, bring him up to speed as quickly as we can. The crew I, I happened to be assigned to was just totally in love with their previous co-pilot. And they buddied with him and drank with him and played with him. And they just were resented horribly that he was suddenly uh, removed from their crew. Because of course, as you can well imagine, the crew has to function as a unit. Every member has to perform their individual responsibilities or, or else the crew doesn't survive. And they just didn't have any confidence of that, uh, that we'd be able in, as individuals to meet those tests. And it was uh, just a, an extremely, they made it an extremely unpleasant experience for me and did everything they could to get me to throw in the towel and say, uh, transfer me out of here to something else. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, gonna go through with this, but I stuck it out and uh, managed to eventually level the playing field to some degree. So they gradually allowed you to be part of their team, I guess, right? They were actually forced to, because when we got to Newfoundland en route to the combat zone, flying our own airplane, we had to await a, a favorable tailwind in order to make the long hump from Newfoundland to Scotland. And uh, while we were waiting for the, the, uh, the boost of the, of the tailwinds, my pilot takes it upon himself to get uh, uh, infected <laughs> with VD. Uh, yep, yep. Went across the base one night and gets thrown in the hospital. And so the rest of the group has to proceed and we sit there for two weeks. And when he's finally released, he's so darn weak, he can't stand up. So we had to load him into the airplane. So I called the navigator and the bombardier who had been my nemesis uh, up to that point aside. And I said, now look, you SOBs, you've made my life pure hell, but you're gonna have to depend on me to fly this airplane and to get us to combat. And I told the navigator who was the chief instigator of, of my uh, <laughs> resistance uh, that if he didn't hit the, landfall in Scotland on the nose that I was personally going to throw his butt out of the airplane without a parachute. <laughs> so, so uh, the air did clear somewhat as I, uh, uh, as you can imagine. And uh, I did manage to uh, successfully get him across the North Atlantic and he did hit the uh, landfall. And uh, so as we got into combat, and of course, with the concentration that we had to have on survival to come home or to get back or to uh, perform our functions and uh, succeed uh, and continue to live, things did ameliorate to some extent, but we never became real close buddies. 
I noticed that. I noticed that as I read the book, but I want to back up just a drop. Can can you talk a little bit about the the actual plane that you were flying? It was a B-17. It was a bomber. Okay. What what did it take to fly that plane? What was that plane like? How many crew members did you need to fly it? The B-17 was one of the most well-designed and well-conceived uh, pieces of equipment that you could ever have been delivered. We had another four-engine uh, aircraft, heavy bomber, that the Air Force uh, utilized uh, called a B-24, the Liberator. But it was nothing like the B-17 to fly. The B-17 was invented in 1935 by the Boeing company. It was a um, extremely well-designed and well-constructed aircraft. It was unpressurized, which meant that at high altitude, the only way we could survive and that the airplane could survive was on oxygen. And so the engines had to be supercharged to function at high altitude. And we had to be dependent uh, above 10,000 feet uh, upon supplemental oxygen. The um, 10 man crew consisted of a navigator, a bombardier, a pilot and co-pilot, upper uh, turret gunner, uh, a ball turret gunner, radio gunner, and two waist gunners and a tail gunner. And as we got into combat, there were occasions when our uh, crew would be the lead crew in the formation. And I would be replaced by a command pilot in the co-pilot's position and ordered to go back and fly the tail gun position. Oh, and you hadn't been trained for that, right? Never been trained, never even fired a 50 caliber before. Oh my, and you're six foot two. You sat on a little tiny bicycle seat with your knees, uh, on your haunches, and I couldn't stand that, so I had to put my feet out in front of me, and the only thing that protected you from the elements was a canvas boot around the twin 50s, twin 50 caliber machine guns. And um, they loaded the guns for me, they stuck me in the tail, and they said, you're the fire control officer for the formation. Well, I couldn't even connect with anybody but the pilot couldn't talk with anybody else in the formation. So that was ridiculous on its face. But the fact that I'd never fired a 50 caliber before certainly came back to haunt me because when we came under attack, I just bore down on the triggers and was spraying lead all over the sky and froze both barrels. They burned out. Oh no! Okay. So I was sitting there without any without any ability to shoot anything, and when I got back from that mission, I said, "I'm refusing to fly in that tail gun position because you never trained me for that. You trained me to fly the airplane, and I'm not going to do that again. So court martial me or transfer me or do whatever you have to do, but I'm not getting in the tail." So when my crew led the the formation thereafter, I sat on the ground. You did not finish your tour at the same time your crew did because right. you sat out some of those missions because you didn't feel you were qualified to be in the tail gun position, right? And one other reason that I didn't finish with them, I was hospitalized uh, after one mission because 
the nose had been penetrated by some shrapnel and there was a jet, cold jet airstream pointed right at my feet and both feet were frostbitten. And so I was grounded uh, for frostbite and missed a couple of missions for that reason as well. I would imagine that it was quite cold at the altitudes that you were flying. Is it, did you mention it could be like 40 below zero? 50 to 60 degrees below zero. Hence and frostbite, we, right? And frostbite was, was really a, a terrible enemy. Uh, it was one of the four enemies that we faced, all of which began with F. And one was the fear that we, we had because we were literally scared to death to face uh, the professional German Air Force who'd been flying for four years when we got there. Uh, the second was the flak that uh, was constantly thrown up from the ground that we didn't have any defense against. And of course, the third was the fighters. They were very experienced and far superior to us in determining techniques to attack us and to bring us down, prevent us from getting to the target. And of course, the last but not the least was the freezing. The temperature at, uh, at high altitude for hours on end was so debilitating that uh, there were times when we were almost frozen stiff. Uh, we did have some heated underwear that we connected to the electrical system, but oftentimes that wouldn't work effectively. We had heavy leather covered uh, sheepskin lined uh, flying suits and we put on all the clothing that we could to protect ourselves against the, the, the bitter cold. But it really was, was so debilitating that it hampered and interfered drastically with our ability to function at high altitude for hours on end. Our missions were sometimes 10 and 11 hours long, and we'd be at high altitude for uh, two thirds of that time. That's, that's incredible what you were up against during that time. Now, Lucky, your 100th bomb group was known as the bloody 100th. Could you tell us how you earned that nickname? There were several reasons. When we arrived in England, we were one of the earliest groups to assist the British. And we were going out in broad daylight against the advice of the British because they had attempted daylight bombing and had concluded that it was impossible to survive uh, against the German Air Force, which really had air superiority over all of Europe because it was all occupied. We did not have any fighter escort that could get us beyond the enemy coast. So we were going out unprotected in mass formation. And we were um, really guinea pigs trying to prove a strategy for how the, the bomber force of the Air Corps could be utilized to assist the British and bring the Germans to their knees uh, the most effectively. And we were not aware as crewmen that the, we, there were such differences in how that should be done between our, ourselves and the British. That was never made known to us. But at any rate, we continued to 
pursue the daylight bombing uh, mission. And uh, it was um, horrifying to us to discover that, that we were playing in somebody else's backyard. The Germans were defending their homeland and they were doing it very effectively. And, and so uh, anytime we were over continental Europe, we were over enemy territory. So if we were knocked out of the sky, we were captured or killed. It was that simple. Wow, that's, that's, that's pretty terrifying. And when I, I say the word terrifying, you know, Kevin, you, the way that you captured in writing the, uh, a couple of the missions particularly that stood out to me where I just got, I got so involved in it. One of them was Lucky's uh, mission uh, over Bremen. Uh, this was, I think, about the fourth to last mission that Lucky flew, if I'm correct in that. Could you tell us, Kevin, a little bit about writing that story? Uh, and then I'll bounce back to, to Lucky to tell a little bit more about it. It's funny. Brem, the Bremen mission, to me, was the backbone. You know, a, a lot of the missions are similar. They're not all the same, but they're similar. So to try to cut down on repetition, we I wanted to try to focus in on one mission in particular. And so when Lucky told me that the Bremen mission uh, on October 8th, 1943, was one was the mission that he thought he was going to die on, I, I knew we had the mission we really needed to slow down and get deep into. Plus, uh, there was a couple uh, narrative elements that I think made it attractive, you know, his old crew was gone. It was a brand new crew. He was the lead pilot. And, and then what he does during that mission and, and some of the characters in the 100th bomb group who uh, get shot down in that mission are, you know, historically important that I thought it was an excellent chance to tell this story very slowly. And, it, and it's a harrowing mission. What's funny about it is I initially had plotted the book out where you never leave the, the October 8th mission. You, it follows from beginning to end. And it basically the book ends when you land at the end of that mission. Lucky told me I was insane when I sent him and said, this will never work. Stubborn. I was a stubborn one this time. And I said, no, no, it's going to work. We're going we're gonna to just keep it concentrated here. I think I got a draft done with that and it just didn't work. So we went, so the draft you read or the version of the book you read is the one that Lucky told me would work from the beginning. But we picked that mission because of, of its importance, because of how harrowing it is, and because of some of the unique elements that allow us really um, to tell a bigger story of the air war by, by doing it very intimately. Well, it was a harrowing experience just to read about Lucky's mission over Bremen. Lucky, could you give us a couple comments on that flight, that mission that you flew back in 1943, October? October 8th. Never forget what, it. You never forget it. What made that stand out? It stood out for a number of reasons. And I'm afraid I didn't answer your previous question adequately about why we became known as the Bloody Hundreds. Uh, our losses, due to the fact that we were going out in broad daylight against the advice of the British and were suffering horrendous losses. And we did not end up as being the group in the 8th Air Force with the highest number, but we were just second or third uh, over the entire course of, of the war. But when we lost, we lost heavily. In fact, two days after the October 8th mission, 
uh, during Black Week, as it was known. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had five days of uh, intensive maximum efforts where we were uh, attempting to, to really cripple the industrial complex of the Nazis. And on the mission that proved to be my worst mission on October the 8th, and the one that which I had serious doubts that I was going to survive or make it back, that was the worst. And that's what Kevin highlights, of course, and actually starts out with in the book and, and gradually feeds in uh, the things that led up to it. But two days later, the 100th bomb group sent out 13 aircraft. It's all they could put up. We usually put up 18. We could only put up 13. And we got one crew home. That's awful. So that gives you some concept of what our horrendous losses were at times Mm. and why we became known as the Bloody Hundred. There was also another incident that uh, was attributed to us erroneously. And that was that on a shuttle mission where we would bomb uh, deep into occupied Germany, uh, into Regensburg, and instead of returning to England after the bombing, we proceeded to North Africa. And on that mission, supposedly, we had an unwritten agreement with the German Air Force that if you were so badly uh, battle damaged that you couldn't make it back to England and you wanted to surrender, you dropped your wheels to signify that. And instead of shooting you down, they would escort you to the nearest airfield, you'd land and be captured. And on that mission, the rumor got started that one of our crews was knocked out of formation and dropped its wheels. And when the escorting German fighters came up on either side, the gunners shot them down. And therefore, thereafter, we were a marked group. Mm. Well, the, the, the Germans themselves said that's ridiculous because we couldn't tell one group from another. And we didn't care. We were just interested in knocking down as many bombers as possible. But at any rate, we attributed that myth and we have not lost it to this day. It's still firmly believed because historians repeated it. And once it's in writing, it becomes gospel. It becomes gospel, you're right. (laughs) To get back to the, the October 8th mission, We lost 12 out of our 18 airplanes on the bomb run. They got shot out of the formation. And I suddenly realized with this brand new crew that I was flying with, that I was the only element leader. Mm -hmm. An element was three ships. And uh, I was the only element leader that was still airborne. And so I lost an engine from a, a flak hit and was only uh, operating on three engines out of the four. And so when I realized the predicament we were in, I fired a flare, an assembly flare, and the other five ships left flying, formed on me, and we tacked on to a following wave of bombers from the 95th Bomb Group that also flew in our combat wing. Uh, And that's the only way that we got home. Because flying in formation gives you mutual protection. And if you have to leave that and go out alone, then the Germans could just pick you off at will. 
and that, that was the worst thing that could happen to you. And I was afraid that that, that was going to happen to me on that mission. And you limped, you limped back to the air base in England and you must've been really rattled after that, I'm sure. Well, that, that was a, a horrendous experience. I was still a second Lieutenant at that juncture. That was my 22nd mission. The first mission that I had flown without my original crew. So I was flying with another crew. Uh, directly in front of me and almost taking me down when they were rammed by a, an attacking uh, German fighter and blew up uh, was the operations officer, the second in command of the squadron. And so when I landed, the squadron commander met me and wanted to know where the operations officer was. And I said, well, I saw them explode, so I, I don't expect this is coming back. So he said, well, then that makes you the, because you've got more missions than anybody else, you, you'll be the new operations officer. And I said, well, that's going to be pretty awkward because I'm only a second lieutenant. <laughs> said, yeah, but uh, you'll have our support. We'll promote you as rapidly as we can, which in the combat zone, you could be promoted every 90 days. So we'll, we'll support you and, uh, you won't have any problem with that. So I became the operations officer with ground duties as well as flying duties to finish my tour. You had to finish your tour. Now, I think we, we have to look back again and say, you were how old at this point? Like 22, maybe 21? 21. You're a kid. Mm -hmm. You're a kid. I want to go back to Kevin. Kevin, Lucky's last mission, his 25th mission, the one that was afterwards he was going to be sent home. Lucky, you know how it turned out. You can't, you finished the mission and you, you went home. But when I read about that mission in your book, Kevin, I was scared for Lucky because even though I, I knew it turned out okay, I felt like, is he going to make it? There's that, I guess, a jinx associated with the fact that it's your last mission. Nobody, nobody wants to to get killed at all, but specifically on their last mission before they go home. Did you feel that writing that, Kevin, that that same sense of sort of fear for Lucky? Weirdly, yeah, you do. I, and I, and I, I could call him whenever I had a question, but I, I felt even when I was writing it, you, you get us, you, you forget um, that he's alive and well and can, and it's told you the story. And I think there's, there's something to the power of the way he tells the story that takes you in there and makes you kind of kind of live it with them and i think that's important i love that story too uh out of, out of the book i like the last mission story and i very much like uh when sully and lucky go to london that was one of my favorite chapters to write as well but i agree with you i had the same feeling and and i had complete control over it because i had all the information i definitely uh was relieved when that plane landed but i did want to i just want to make a personal note on that last mission you lucky you were you were knocking out V1 rocket sites in France, I believe, on your last mission. That's correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. The, re the reason is I have a personal connection with that because a lot of those V1s were pointing to London. And mm -hmm. my mother was in London during World War II. My mother was in the Royal Air Force, actually. And all during the war, the rockets were terrifying to the, to the Londoners. And... Uh, thank you from, from me 
<laughs> for for knocking out those V1 rocket silos because uh, who knows some of those rockets could have landed on my mother and killed her and I wouldn't be here today. Thank you for that. So lucky when you were in England and you were flying these missions, you talked about your crew. You never really got too close to them. You also mentioned Kevin in the book, you, you have lucky saying that he didn't really want to get too close friends with anybody really in that group. Lucky, could you tell us why that was? Well, in the air war, when you lose a crew, they're just gone. There's no funeral, there's no memorial service, there's no recognition of the fact that they were ever there, really. They're just empty bunks. That's unlike life. Normally, if somebody passes away, you have a memorial service or you, you, you bury them with, with some ceremony uh, in memory, but that doesn't happen in, in, the, uh, in the air war. And uh, that was a little uh, strange to us, but it was a reality that we had to face because despite our losses, we had to go out the next day and put up the maximum effort that we could to continue to put as much pressure on, on the, uh, the German industrial complex as we could. And um, when I lost Sully and discovered that, that he had been killed on takeoff in a very uh, high-powered airplane that he was transitioned to and had died the day before I got there to his visit his base, um, there was a memorial service, there was a funeral. And that was very traumatic for me. It hit me between the eyes much more so than, than any other losses. I had friends that uh, I had lost out of the group, of course. But again, as you mentioned, it was um, rather foolhardy to become really too close to someone else because, you know, Every time they climbed on an airplane, it might be the last time you saw them. And that sort of thing was, was so abrupt and so, uh, I guess, heartless, if you want to attach a, an adjective to it, that um, you had to sort of become hardened to it, immune to it, and continue to function and do your job regardless of, of uh, missing your friends. So when new people came in, you checked them out to determine what their talents were as far as contributing to the, to the general effort, but um, you didn't want to become too close. That's understandable. People. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it hurt so much uh, to lose somebody that you became so connected with. Now, Kevin, you mentioned about when Sully and Lucky go to London, going to leave that alone because I want people to read that in the book. It's, it's a very, it's a great story. And certainly lucky the, the grief that you felt because of the loss of your dear friend was, was very evident in the story that Kevin wrote. Uh, I was very moved by it. It, it, was, it was a high impact and it certainly, it really sort of, explains why you didn't want to be too close to the people you were going on these missions with, because the pain that you felt over Sully 
you know, could have been replicated many times over if you had developed a lot of close relationships. But uh, yeah, definitely the story of Sully embedded in this amazing book is, is just fantastic. And Kevin, you did such a nice job writing Lucky's story and what his friend meant to him. So when you got home, when you finally got home, Lucky, and uh, the war still wasn't quite over yet, were you a different person who arrived home than the young man who left not that much earlier? I certainly was, and I realized that I was. While I'd been going through flight school, I'd fallen in love with a girl in South Carolina who wrote me nearly every day while I was there to keep my morale up. And she's the one that had presented me with a nylon stocking that I wore as a scarf as a good luck talisman during my missions. And she fully expected, uh, we, we had not been formally engaged, but she, I knew, expected that we would be married if I survived the war and came home. And when I did, I was, um, I had been during the war and while I was overseas, I had been so intent on doing my job as well as I possibly could, both on the ground as well as in the air as an operations officer, that um, the sudden lack of activity and responsibility impacted me uh, ferociously. And I said, good night, I need, I need an assignment. I need to fly, I need to get back in the air. And, do, and I was on leave and didn't have any responsibility. Mm. And I realized when I looked in the mirror that I was not anything like the person that had fallen in love with uh, this gal in South Carolina. And they sent me down to, after staying at home for 30 days and then going down to Miami Beach and putting me up in a book Cadillac hotel with no responsibilities. All we had to do was answer for roll call once a day. And we were rationed to a quart of whiskey a day. You had coupons. You were rationed to a quart a day? You could walk into any bar on any corner and buy as much as you could hold, but buying it at the, at the liquor store, uh, you, you couldn't buy but one fifth a day. And we were swapping coupons, cigarettes for coupons so that we, <laughs> we had enough to party with. But anyway, I'd been out all night one night and got in about five o'clock and got word that uh, I was due at eight o'clock for a um, full physical. And so I showed up and they handed me a 14 page questionnaire about, well, are you having nightmares? Uh, do you cross the street to avoid meeting people? Are you irritable? Are you hard to get along with? And I, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And I was just checking off, the, not paying any attention. I was still hung over. But I handed this in and then went up to the dentist and, and this corporal was screaming down the hall for me. And he had these papers and it had across the front in big red letters, stop processing. And so he said, sir, would you come with me? And he took me to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, I've read your report here and you're going to the psychiatric hospital. You're flack happy. Oh boy. 
And General Arnold says, if you have to go to that hospital, you gotta be there for at least six weeks. So he said, you'll be on the train this afternoon to St. Petersburg or you'll be court-martialed. And so when I got there and uh, the next day in the bright sunshine, the commanding officer called me and he said, why in the world are you here? And I said, I don't know, sir, but I've just needed an assignment. I needed something to do. And they refused to uh, keep me occupied and, and it's uh, telling on me. So he said, well, you just have to report for roll call, but in the meantime, you can lie on the beach and cool your heels for six weeks because you're gonna be here that long. So uh, yes, no, I don't think anybody goes to war and comes back the same person. To be shot at, to realize that any day, any minute, a bullet may have your name on it, is a pretty horrifying way to live. I didn't go through that, and I can only try to imagine that constant fear of, of the unknown. I mean, you had the, the known was you were freezing cold, you were going to have flack shot at you, you are going to have fighters firing at you, you could have mechanical problems on the plane just naturally, you could have uh, an error from somebody else on your crew. But you know, that could always happen. But the unknown, I guess was, were you going to come back? Were you going to come back after that mission? And this book just provides such suspense, action, but it's also a, a sort of a deep dive into you, Lucky, and your experience, the experience of, of one man who was very courageous, but doing his duty for his country. And uh, you know, this book is absolutely tremendous. I have to mention this, Lucky, that you said that you were lucky that you're lucky uh, is evidenced by the fact that you're still here after going through what you did during World War II, but you, you said the really the luckiest time of your life was when you met your wife, Bobby. Can you say a couple words about Bobby for us? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was, was so um, trying so hard to get assigned uh, to some duty. Ironically, the first thing that they did when I got out of the hospital was to send me to an instrument pilot school in Bryan, Texas, which was the only one the Air Force had to learn to fly instruments. And I said, my God, I needed that before I went to England, not after. <laughs> and so I was really pretty ticked. I was in the first class of combat crew returnees to go through that school. None of the instructors had ever been to combat. And here they were preparing people to go to combat by teaching them how to fly instruments. And of course, the weather in Europe was abominable. There's no arguing that it's probably the worst in the world. And we were, had coped with that, and I had uh, succeeded in uh, living through it and, and surviving that. So um, I, I suddenly discovered that one of the instructors at the school was a fraternity brother from home. And I looked him up, and he uh, welcomed me and, and said, um, and let me know in no uncertain terms that he was madly in love with one of the local uh, gals there who had a, uh, a house guest that weekend and wanted to know if I'd be willing to have a blind date with his girlfriend's house guest. And I said, uh, 
okay, sounds like fun. We'll, uh, he said, well, she's also got an older sister that uh, wants to triple date with us and we'll pick the girls up and bring them out to the officer's club for dinner and dancing on Saturday night. And I said, okay. Well, we picked the girls up at a wedding reception that was out in the garden and, and it was sort of dusk and we just uh, saw these figures that we were introduced to and went on out to the club and we got in the light. I took one look at the sister and I said, oh man, I got the wrong date. <laughs> So anyway, that's great. Uh, that uh, that evening we uh, we danced and we chatted at dinner. And I said, "Well, I'd really love to have your phone number because I'd like to take you to dinner and and we would go to a movie or something." And she said, "Well, might be okay, but I'm booked up for two weeks, so get in line." <laughs> get in line! Oh my goodness! <laughs> I said, "Okay, put me down for two weeks from now." <laughs> So I waited patiently two weeks before I could even take her out. And one thing led to another and we eventually, uh, she became my dearest friend and bride for 71 years. God bless her. God bless you. That was the luckiest thing. I rank that as the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. Oh, that's, that's terrific. What a nice story. And, and that certainly, uh, you know, to be married to somebody for 71 years, my wife and I are coming up on 39 years and people are saying, oh, oh wow, that's so long a time, this, that, and the other. And uh, 71, amazing. And uh, to have a close friend all those years as well. Kevin, uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you hope people will glean from reading Damn Lucky? It's, it's, it's a hard question. I, I I hope they enjoy the story. I hope it's engaging. I because I, I think deep down I think the story needs to be told, right? So on the service level, I hope people, you know, are engaged, are entertained, and are moved by the story, like like I was when I wrote it. I think the takeaways from from it are, are, are a couple. One is obviously courage and understanding the sacrifices that Lucky and his generation made. But I think also from a wider standpoint, you know, we got to be careful what we ask the military to do. What they asked Lucky and his and his squadron mates to do was was suicidal, uh, but they did it, and they did it because they you know have honor and integrity, and they swore to do it. And uh, I think we as as leaders, civilian leaders of the military, need to make sure we're very careful what we ask the military to do because they'll die trying to do it, even if it's stupid. Second thing I hope that that they take away is is just uh, the courage that Lucky uh, you know portrays with being honest about himself. I think there's a, there's a real transparency here. And, and finally, um, his, the way that he talks about the trauma of war and the folly of war, I think is a, is a message we need to learn and we need to hear. And I think it means, it comes with such gravity from a guy like Lucky who fought in World War II for him to come back and have these, these kind of, uh, the courage to talk about this the way he does, I think gives our, our modern veterans some room to uh, to deal with what they're dealing with too. So I hope those are what you take away from it. But deep down, I just want people to read it because I think it's an amazing story and, and Lucky's an amazing guy. And the more we get that story out, I think the better off we'll be. Agreed, agreed. Lucky, uh, what do you hope people take away from this book? 
Well, one of the one things that that I insisted upon and Kevin totally agreed with me was that it should be accurate as well as as we could make it uh, contain no errors or misinterpretations. The reality of war is startling. Uh, it is something that in my hundred years, I can look back now and say with certainty that war is futile. It is folly. We learn nothing but uh, the fact that there are no victors, there are only victims, and that war proves nothing and we don't learn a thing from them. And that's certainly being evidenced even today all over the world, especially in Ukraine and that it is a sad commentary on the human condition that we cannot resolve our differences in a diplomatic or insensible and radical way, uh, a rational way without resorting to armed conflict. Thank you, Lucky, and thank you for your wisdom. And I really appreciate that. So Lucky, you're, you said you're a hundred years old. If you at 100 right now could go back and speak to your 21-year-old self who hasn't left the U.S., you're preparing to leave to go to Europe to fight in the war, what would you tell your 21-year-old self? Don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry, but I th as I look back on it in all honesty, I have to admit it's not it was not the smartest thing I ever did. And yet, you don't have any choice. Your patriotic duty to your country to go when you're called is overwhelming. The peer pressure is, is uh, ominous and everybody in a world war as it was in World War II is not so today, but at that time, even the children as well as the grandchildren and grandparents were all totally engrossed and totally involved in pursuing the war. And we haven't experienced that since. But one of the things that I have been most interested in doing while I still have the, the opportunity and the time is to get a national day of recognition for all of the people, the millions of Americans who supported us, who weren't in uniform, but who came out of the homes and outproduced the world and gave us all moral support and kept the home fires burning and buried the body bags when they came back. And they've never been recognized. They've never been even given a thanks. What a tremendous contribution they made toward our prevailing, or you and I, neither would still be here. You're right. And, uh, you know, the, the effort that was given by the people back home is, uh, and was amazing. And thank you for giving that credit, for calling that out, Lucky, because you're right, you don't really hear too much about the people at home. You, you hear a lot about that. Of course, there's the servicemen and women were paramount. They were huge. But it couldn't have been done, as you said, without the labors and the love and the efforts of the people at home. 
Well, I think it's the greatest oversight and error that, that has been committed. And so two days ago, we had a national, or we had a, a local day of Homefront Heroes Appreciation Day. And we got the, the city and the county to recognize that. We hope we'll get a national movement, grassroots movement started across the country that will give us, because uh, we have um, uh, Veterans Day, we have our Memorial Days, we have our Armed Forces Day, Fourth of July. We emulate everything but the home front heroes who without them, we never would have survived. We ought to thank them and let them know that they are appreciated for what they did. Absolutely. Thank you, Lucky. And the book, Damn Lucky, One Man's Courage During the Bloodiest Military Campaign in Aviation History, the story of John Luckadoo of the 100th Bomb Group. Tremendous book. It is a page turner. I absolutely enjoyed reading it. And I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking with both of you gentlemen. So one quick question for you, Kevin, what's your next project? How can you top lucky? <laughs> I can't, um, it's, I'm struggling with it, to be honest. I, I think I'm gonna do a book on an OSS operative that really, uh, that was part of the great escape. And he was, uh, he was a prisoner at Stalag Luft three. But I am having a hard time getting into it because this one, I've written 13 books, but this one, I really love this one. I'm having a hard time letting this one go. And usually I can let them go pretty quickly. So we'll see. Um, I'll have to get started though, because I owe the publisher another book. So that's a good motivator. It definitely is. And I'm sure that this book is easily obtainable through the normal channels. Yep. So I urge people to get it. So gentlemen, I want to thank you for being here and being willing to speak with us on Your History, Your Story. It's a great story. And thank you again. Thanks. All right. See y'all. I appreciate your giving us this opportunity to talk about it. It's been great talking with you and I do appreciate all of, all of your support. Oh, absolutely. You have a good day the rest of your day. Okay, Lucky? Thank you. You okay. too, Jim. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.